we all make mistakes. That's one of those basic principles of life we're all taught as children. But have you ever made a mistake knowing it was a mistake, even as you were making it? Have you ever found yourself making the same mistake over and over and over again? The duel. So it comes to this, Fistandantilus said in his cracked and ancient voice. You could have gone on, living a life of ease. I would have spared you the debilities, the indignities of old age. Why rush to your own destruction? You know, Raceland said, breathing softly, his strength nearly spent. Fistandantilus nodded slowly, his eyes on Raceland. As I said, he murmured softly, it is a pity this must happen. We could have done much together, you and I. Now, life for one, death for the other, Raceland said. Reaching out his hand, he carefully laid the bloodstone pendant upon the cold slab. Then he heard the words of chanting and raised his voice in an answering chant himself. The battle lasted long. The two guardians of the tower who watched the sight they had conjured up from the memories of the black-robed mage lying within their grasp were lost in confusion. They had, up to this point, seen everything through Raceland's vision. But so close now were the two magic users that the tower's guardians saw the battle through the eyes of both opponents. Lightning crackled from fingertips, black-robed bodies twisted in pain. Screams of agony and fury echoed amidst the crash of rock and timber. Magical walls of fire thawed walls of ice. Hot winds blew with the force of hurricanes. Storms of flame swept the hallways. Apparitions sprang from the abyss at the behest of their masters. Elementals shook the very foundations of the castle. The great, dark fortress of Fistandantilus began to crack, stones tumbling from the battlements. And then, with a fearful shriek of rage and pain, one of the black-robed mages collapsed, blood flowing from his mouth. Which was which? Who had fallen? The guardians sought frantically to tell, but it was impossible. The other mage, nearly spent, rested a moment, then managed to drag himself across the floor. His trembling hand reached up from the top of the stone slab, groped about, then found and grasped the bloodstone pendant. With his last strength, the black-robed mage gripped the pendant and crawled back to kneel beside the still-living body of his victim. The mage on the floor could not speak, but his eyes, as they gazed into the eyes of his murderer, cast a curse of such hideous aspect that the two guardians of the tower felt even the chill of their tormented existence grow warm by comparison. The black-robed mage holding the bloodstone hesitated. He was so close to his victim's mind that he could read the unspoken message of those eyes, and his soul shrank from what it saw. But then his lips tightened. Shaking his hooded head and giving a grim smile of triumph, he carefully and deliberately pressed the pendant down on the black-robed chest of his victim. The body on the floor writhed in tormented agony. A shrill scream bubbled from his blood-frothed lips. Then, suddenly, the scream ceased. The mage's skin wrinkled and cracked like dry parchment. His eyes stared sightlessly into the darkness. He slowly withered away. With a shuddering sigh, the other mage collapsed on top of the body of his victim. He himself weak, wounded, near death, but clutched in his hand was the bloodstone, and flowing through his veins was new blood, giving him life and wood in time. With a shuddering sigh, the other mage collapsed on top of the body of his victim. He himself weak, wounded, near death, 
But clutched in his hand was a bloodstone, and flowing through his veins was new blood, giving him life that would, in time, fully restore him to health. In his mind was knowledge, memories of hundreds of years of power, spells, visions of wonder and terrors that spanned generations. But there, too, were memories of a twin brother, memories of a shattered body, of a prolonged, painful existence. As two lives mingled within him, as hundreds of strange, conflicting memories surged through him, the mage reeled at the impact. Crouching beside the corpse of his rival, the black-robed mage who had been the victor stared at the bloodstone in his hand. Then he whispered in horror, Who am I? As two lives mingled within him, as hundreds of strange, conflicting memories surged through him, the mage reeled at the impact. Crouching beside the corpse of his rival, the black-robed mage who had been the victor stared at the bloodstone in his hand. Then he whispered in horror, Who am I? Hello, and welcome to the D&D Book Club. My name is Megan, and today we'll be doing a deep dive into War of the Twins by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, published by TSR Incorporated in 1987. This is the second novel in the Dragonlance Legends trilogy, which continues the story begun in Time of the Twins, also by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Before we get started, I want to warn everyone that this episode will contain spoilers. If you would prefer to read the book before listening to this episode, I suggest you stop now. The next episode will focus on the third book of the trilogy, Test of the Twins. All three books in the trilogy are still in print and easy to find online or in brick-and-mortar bookstores. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at dndbookclub at gmail.com. That's D-A-N-D-D-Bookclub. Or you can follow me on Instagram at dndbookclub. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I like to start each episode with a little history lesson. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I like to start each episode with a little history lesson. The Dragonlance series has a long and detailed history, and exploring that history is almost as much fun as reading the actual novels for a history nerd like me. This particular episode, however, is going to focus on perhaps the single defining event in the history of Kryn, the Cataclysm. If you've read the preceding novels or you've listened to the preceding episode of the show, you're familiar with the reign of Istar. Istar was the greatest city that Ancelon had ever known, greatest in wealth, greatest in power, and greatest in devotion to the gods. It was that classic city on a hill meant to shine as an example to the rest of the world. But the core of that city was rotten. The all-powerful king priest had become obsessed with destroying anything he considered evil, which, in practice, meant anything different than himself. The king priest demanded that the gods give him godlike power of his own to reshape the world as he saw fit. In answer, the gods sent the cataclysm. So what was the cataclysm? In short, it was a meteor strike. A meteor struck Istar, destroying the city and killing all who lived within, drowning anything that remained beneath the red waves of what would come to be known as the Blood Sea of Istar. 
the force of the strike caused earthquakes, floods, and fires all across Ancelon that forever altered the landscape of the continent. Within the lore of the series, the meteor is often described as a fiery mountain hurled at Kryn by the wrathful gods to punish the corruption of Istar. The event itself was preceded by a strange series of events known as the Thirteen Calamities, which portended a disaster to befall the world. The final calamity was the Night of Doom. All the true clerics who remained on Ancelon, that is to say all the clerics whose faith in the gods was sincere rather than a means to increase their own power, disappeared in a single night, never to be seen again. However, so few clerics remain on Ancelon, uncorrupted by the church, that most people simply didn't notice. The cataclysm disrupted every aspect of life on Ancelon. The city of Tarsus, once a thriving seaport, no longer had a sea. The city of Zaxaroth was swallowed in a landslide. The once unified nation of Urgoth became two islands, northern and southern Urgoth. A new sea, called New Sea, split the continent almost in half. The dwarves and the elves retreated into their respective kingdoms and isolated themselves from the outside world. Harvests failed, leading to massive famine. New diseases appeared, spread by refugees, decimating the already starving population. The people turned to the Knights of Salamnia for help, expecting them to save the world as they had done before, but there was nothing the knights could do, and the once revered order became despised. The faith of the true gods was lost. People looked at the devastation around them and concluded that the gods had abandoned Kryn. Thus, the age of despair began, a dark age of ignorance, violence, and suffering without hope. It is in this hopeless time that the War of the Twins will be fought. To recap the previous novel, Raisley Magir has taken the black robes and become the most powerful wizard on Ancelon. In the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus, aided by his apprentice, a dark elf named Dalimar, Raisin prepares to travel back in time. His aim is to gain enough magical knowledge to enter the portal to the plane of existence known as the Abyss. Upon that plane, he will confront Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness, and by defeating her, become a god himself. Raisin is not the only one making plans. His half-sister, the dragon high lord Kidiara Uthmatar, has plans to use the remnants of the dragon armies and to use her ally, the death knight Lord Soth, to reignite the fires of war on Ancelon. The wizard's conclave, the ruling body of magic users on Kryn, learns of Raceland's plan from Dalimar, their spy. They send a cleric of Paladine named Lady Corsania back in time to the height of the doomed city of Istar, along with Raceland's twin brother Karaman and, accidentally, the Kender Tasselhoff Burfoot. Things go poorly for the time travelers. Karaman and Tasselhoff are sold as slaves, and Karaman is forced to fight in the gladiatorial arena. Lady Corsania, already in love with Raceland, becomes even more tangled in his web. On the day of the Cataclysm, Raceland, Karaman, and Chrysania leave this time period, traveling into the future, unknowingly leaving Tasselhoff alone, deep below the Temple of Istar. The novel begins with Raceland, Lady Chrysania, and Karaman having arrived in the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus, 100 years after the Cataclysm. The casting of the time travel spell has weakened Raceland significantly. Karaman has been left temporarily blind by a divine spell cast by Chrysania to protect Raceland from his brother's murderous assault. The room in which Chrysania finds herself and the twins is utterly black and freezing cold. Only her platinum medallion of Paladine provides light to see by. The trio face immediate danger. 
The Tower of High Sorcery in Palantis was cursed, and the undead guardians keep out all intruders. In the present, Raceland is master of the tower, and thus the guardians are under his command. The guardians in this time period, however, don't know who this person is. They perceive him to be an intruder, and his companions as well. It's only when Caramon calls Raceland Fist and Dantilus that the guardians halt. They recognize that name. The guardians look into Raceland's memory, probing for an explanation. They see Raceland studying with Fist and Dantilus as his apprentice prior to assuming the old wizard's identity. Unknown to the other apprentices, but known to Raceland, is that Fistan Dantilus will choose the apprentice most powerful in the magical arts and drain the life force from him using a magical gem called a bloodstone. This method has allowed Fistan Dantilus to cheat death for hundreds of years. Fistan Dantilus attempts to drain the life from Raceland, but Raceland resists, drawing the life force from Fistan Dantilus in return. The Guardians watch a battle play out between the two black robe wizards and, when it is finished, they do not know who has won. Has Raceland killed and absorbed Fistandantilus's life force, personality, and knowledge? Or has Fistandantilus killed Raceland and possessed his body? Raceland soon discovers that he has made a serious mistake. The portal to the abyss was located in his tower in the present, but in the past, it's missing. Raceland sends Crisania to visit Astinus, the historian in the Great Library, to find out where the portal is located in this time. Astinus will only reveal the information if Raceland delivers a gift that Fistandantilus promised to Astinus. Raceland visits the library in person, bringing Astinus a magical globe which allows him to see across all of Kryn. In return, Astinus tells Raceland, whom he refers to only as Fistandantilus, that the portal is in the magical fortress called Zaman, far to the south. Raceland, Crisania, and Caramon travel southward toward their final destination. The countryside is dangerous, overrun with bandits, and Raceland is still too weak to use his magic to aid them in their journey. Along the way, the group is waylaid by brigands, led by a peg-legged half-ogre named Steeltoe. Steeltoe plans to kill Raceland and Caramon and keep Crisania as his slave. Instead, Caramon challenges Steeltoe to a one-on-one -on -one fight. Steeltoe accepts, but is defeated by Caramon after a vicious brawl. After Steeltoe is dead, Crisania heals Caramon, and the men are shocked. True healing hasn't been seen on Ancelon for a century, and Crisania's power is viewed with suspicion. They call for Crisania and Raceland to be burned as witches. Caramon intervenes, saying that the witch and the wizard are under his protection. He claims leadership of the remaining brigands, having defeated their leader in combat. Some of the men, men who weren't truly evil but simply desperate and hungry, decide to follow Caramon. Caramon tells the men that they are heading south, thinking to use them as an armed escort. The men understand this differently, however. They think Caramon, the witch, and the wizard intend to assault the dwarven kingdom of Thorbarden to plunder its legendary wealth. Thinking this, the men are eager to join up. Caramon allows them to think what they want. Caramon also tells them that the name of the wizard he travels with is Fistandantilus, a name which commands respect and fear everywhere on Ancelon. Raceland responds to this with silent horror. Raceland has come to realize that he is in extreme danger, not from any external force, but from the force of history itself. In the Great Library, Astinus refers to Raceland as Fistandantilus, as if the two were one and the same. He even momentarily mistook Crisania for Danubis, her long-departed friend from Istar. Caramon, Crisania, and Raceland travel south, gathering people to their group like a rolling snowball until they compromise a small army, just as the true Fistandantilus once did, 
traveling with his general, Faragus, and the cleric Danubis. Raislin has come to realize that he is repeating everything Fistandandalus did. Raislin has come to realize that he is repeating everything Fistandantilus did. In the histories as Raislin originally read them in the present, Fistandantilus was recorded as having traveled from Palanthus south at the head of an army toward the magical fortress Zaman. His army engaged in battle with the mountain dwarves of Thorbarden, a war known as the Dwarfgate War, which only ended when a magical explosion killed most of the combatants, along with Fistandantilus himself. Raislin realizes that Fistandantilus had traveled to this time with Danubis, a powerful cleric he had persuaded to join his cause, and a warrior named Faragus, whom he had enlisted as his bodyguard. Fistandantilus planned to enter the abyss with Danubis to confront the Queen of Darkness. Raislin's plan was Fistandantilus's plan. Fistandantilus failed, however, blowing himself up in the process. Raislin knows that, unless he can find a way to alter time, he will be destroyed as well. As the army moves south across Salamnia, the trio must confront a new enemy, sexual tension. Chrysania is staying in Caramon's tent, but decides to move out once she realizes that Caramon has the hots for her. He claims to be in love with her, but she replies that he's in love with Tika, he's just lonely. Usually, it's men who use the I'm-just-lonely routine, but it works on Caramon like a cold shower. After a fight between the two brothers, Raislin stalks off into the woods to be alone. Chrysania follows him. Raislin confesses his fears to Chrysania, and the two fall into a passionate embrace. Chrysania is DTF, but apparently giving into their throbbing biological urges is a big no-no. Raislin rebuffs her, rebukes her, and tears her robes before stalking off out of the woods once again. Chrysania has had enough of all this toxic masculinity and decides to strike off on her own. Taking her horse, she flees alone into the country. Eventually, she comes to a village which appears to be deserted. Upon exploration, she realizes that everyone in the village has succumbed to plague. The only survivor is a young man on the verge of death himself. Chrysania explains that she is a cleric and her prayers can heal him. The man says that he himself is a cleric too, a cleric of the seeker, aka the fake, not real, gods. And his prayers have done nothing. Chrysania condescendingly explains that her god Paladine is legit and she can legit heal him. The young man refuses to be healed. Chrysania is shocked. Why would this man die rather than let her heal him? The collective memory of the people on Ancelon is still filled with bitterness towards the gods, the gods who cause the cataclysm, the gods who allow famine, disease, and suffering to exist. Chrysania stays with the young man until he dies, pondering what he said. She comes to understand that the faith of the true gods will not return until the people are ready to hear Goldmoon's message hundreds of years into the future. Time is a river, and Chrysania is a mere pebble thrown into the current. Raislin and Caramon team up to find Chrysania before she comes to harm. They find Chrysania in the plague-ravaged village. Caramon, who isn't afraid of any enemy, is terrified of getting sick. He holds his cloak over his mouth. Even Caramon knows masks save lives. The twins find Chrysania and, as Caramon and Chrysania watch from within the safety of a magic bubble, Raislin summons a storm of fire which incinerates the entire village. Once Raislin has recovered from this impulsive act of arson, he has an idea. He uses the power of the dragon orb to cast his thoughts into the future and into the mind of his apprentice, Dalimar. Dalimar has just had a visit in the Tower of High Sorcery from Dragon High Lord Kidiara. 
a very intimate visit, if you take my meaning. They had sex. Afterwards, Dalimar hears Raislin's thoughts in his mind. His timing is perfect, since Dalimar has just finished having sex with Raislin's sister. Raislin instructs him to go to the Great Library and research what caused Vistandantilus to fail. According to the histories, Vistandantilus's spell to open the portal was disrupted when an unnamed gnome attempted to use a magical time travel device nearby. The two magics interacted like vinegar and baking soda, causing the huge explosion which killed Fistandantilus and hundreds of others. Meanwhile, Caramon has received delegations from representatives of two groups which want to join the ragtag humans in the army of Fistandantilus. The first are Kweishu Plainsmen, the ancestors of Goldmoon and Riverwind's tribe, led by a warrior named Dark Knight. The second are Hill Dwarves, cousins of the Dwarves of Thorbarden, led by Rhaegar Fireforge. Rhaegar, Raceland deduces, is the grandfather of their old friend, Flint Fireforge. The Hill Dwarves lived outside the kingdom of Thorbarden long before the Cataclysm, but now they want entry into their ancestral homeland. Earlier, Rhaegar and his companions had gone to a special meeting with Duncan, High King of the clans of dwarves living in Thorbarden. Duncan planned to refuse the Hill Dwarves' entry despite the advice of his second-in-command, an exceptionally tall dwarf named Karis. The meeting nearly broke down into violence before Rhaegar and his hill dwarves departed, swearing they would enter the kingdom by force if necessary. Now they have come to ally with Caramon and his army in hopes of pressing their claim to the mountain kingdom. Allied with the plainsmen and the hill dwarves, the army of Fistandantilus plans to attack the dwarven stronghold at Pax Tharkis. Pax Tharkis, if you'll recall from episode 1, was the same fortress which is commanded by Lord Verminard in Dragons of Autumn Twilight. The fortress is thought to be nearly impenetrable, but Raisin reminds Caramon that history has already proven that the fortress will fall. But Raisin has a plan of his own. He makes a secret pact with a group of doer called Dark Dwarves, who dwell in Thorbarden and are nominally loyal to Duncan. The Dark Dwarves betray their kin, and Caramon's forces are able to take the fortress. But Caramon's plans begin to unravel quickly. The Hill Dwarves want to attack Thorbarden now, before Duncan has a chance to regroup and organize the defense of the mountain. Caramon wants to wait for the supplies to catch up with them. The Hill Dwarves, impatient for vengeance, refuse. Caramon has no choice but to acquiesce. The army of Fistandantilus, the Hill Dwarves, the Plainsmen, and now the Dark Dwarves as well, march toward the mountain gate. There is a scheme in the works, however. Raislin bribed the Dark Dwarves to betray their kin at Pax Tharkis and let his army in, but the Dark Dwarves are actually doing a double-cross. They want power and influence within Thorbarden. They plan to assassinate Caramon, with Raislin's consent. Raislin doesn't care about the Dwarves, his army, the war, or even his brother. All he wants is access to Zaman and the portal. When the Dark Dwarves present their plan to Duncan's general, Karis, he refuses to go along with it. Karis respects Caramon, but does not trust the black robe wizard. Instead, Karis and his men attempt to assassinate Raislin. They infiltrate Raislin's tent and knock Chrysania unconscious. Just then, two figures suddenly appear out of nowhere, Tasselhoff and a gnome. Raislin is so surprised that he is mortally wounded in the battle. The dwarves disappear, taking the kender and gnome with them. I know what you're thinking. Tasselhoff? Wasn't he stranded in the collapsing temple at the end of the last novel? To answer that, let's back up a century. 
Tasselhoff had stolen a magical time travel device from Karaman when they were back in Istar. He wanted to use it to stop the cataclysm. He had stolen it at the urging of Raislin, who tricked Tass into thinking it could be used for just that purpose. But then Tass broke the device. Was this what Raislin intended, or was Raislin attempting to send Tass back to the present? The answer varies depending on who you ask. The end result was that Tass remained in Istar when his friends left, right as the fiery mountain struck Istar. The Temple of the Gods was supposedly destroyed, according to legend, but that's not really what happened. Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness, stole the temple and brought it to her plane of existence, the Abyss. Tasselhoff, trapped in the laboratory below the temple, protected by magic, went along for the ride. Fun fact, this is the same temple which Barum will accidentally cause to reappear on Ancelon when he steals the green gemstone. Read Dragons of Spring Dawning or listen to episode 3 to learn more. Tass wakes up alone and confused. He makes his way out of the temple and into the abyss proper. It's an endless wasteland of nothingness, basically hell for a kender. As Tasselhoff wanders around, thinking he's dead and this is the afterlife, he thinks of a tree, but instead of the nice tree he was imagining, it's a dead tree. He thinks of his friend Flint, but instead of seeing Flint's spirit, he sees the spirit of the evil dwarf, Arak. Tasselhoff learns that you can basically have whatever you want in the abyss, but not in the way you wanted it. Annoyed by this, wondering what he's done to be sent to the abyss and not to the good place, he demands to speak to who's in charge. Unfortunately, Tass gets exactly what he wished for. He's brought to the palace of the Queen of Darkness, who explains to him that he's not really dead and he doesn't belong here. Nevertheless, he'll remain in the abyss for now. The Queen has plans for him. Allowed to wander around once again, Tasselhoff meets a gnome named Nimsh. Nimsh, like Tass, is not dead, but is in the abyss by accident. Nimsh created a device which brought him to this evil place, but now he's accidentally gotten himself stuck. But fortunately for them both, Tass still has the broken time travel device. Nimsh is able to put it back together and even able to make changes so the device will allow two people to travel. They use the device to transport themselves out of the abyss and to find Karaman. They appear in the encampment right as Raislin and Chrysania are being attacked by Karas and his dwarves. Tass and Nimsh are taken to the dungeons of Thorbarden and thrown in jail with a number of dark dwarves. Many of these dark dwarves are sick with plague, and Tass realizes they need to escape as soon as possible. They plan to use the magical device to do so, but before they can, Raislin appears. He survived his wound thanks to Chrysania's healing prayers. Remembering what Dalimar read about a gnome disrupting Fistandantilus' plans, Raislin thinks Nimsh must be the gnome in question. He demands the magical device be given to him and murders Nimsh. This done, he and the horrified Kender vanish. The army and its allies occupy Zaman, the magical fortress once used by the wizards to conduct spellwork too dangerous to be attempted within the Towers of High Sorcery. Raislin keeps Tasselhoff there in secret. Tasselhoff has contracted the illness from the dwarves in the dungeon, and Raislin interrogates him for more information about the Abyss and what he experienced there. Tass reveals that he believes the Dark Queen allowed him and Nimsh to escape so they could deliver a message to Raislin. That message is two simple words. Come home. But those words fill Raislin with disturbing memories of his mother's insanity and slow, agonizing death. Come home had been her last words. 
Finally, Raislin allows Crisania to heal Tass from his illness, but Raislin will still not let Tass see Caramon. As Raislin and Crisania are preparing to enter the portal, Tass manages to escape and goes looking for Caramon. Things aren't going well for General Caramon. The Dark Dwarves double cross has reached fruition. The Dark Dwarves trick the Hill Dwarves, ostensibly under his command, to leave Caramon behind and attack the gates of Thorbarden. The Dark Dwarves themselves attempt to assassinate Caramon before he can escape the fortress. He is nearly killed before being saved at the last minute by none other than Tass, whom Caramon believed had long since returned back to the future. The two seek out Raislin and confront him. Tasselhoff manages to steal the magical device back from Raislin and gives it to Caramon. Caramon makes one last attempt to convince his brother to turn away from evil and come home. Home to their own time, home to solace. He believes that, despite all the evil Raislin has done, there is still goodness inside him. Raislin tells Caramon that he has deliberately allowed the evil within to corrupt his soul beyond redemption, because this corruption was necessary to complete his plans. Raislin could stop Caramon and Tass from leaving, but Raislin, thinking he has escaped the time loop by killing Nimsh, allows them to depart. But Raislin has made a deadly miscalculation. He thinks he has changed the course of time, but he hasn't. Raislin assumes that Nimsh manipulated the magical device sometime after arriving in this time and place, after being allowed to escape by the Dark Queen. Raislin believes he averted that danger by killing Nimsh. He doesn't realize that Nimsh had already made the modification when Raislin first encountered him. Raislin has made a few ripples on the surface of the river, not changed its course. By the time Raislin puts the pieces together, it's too late. The interference of Raislin's magic with the magic of the time travel device causes a catastrophic detonation, the same detonation that killed Fistandantilus. Raislin struggles to protect himself and Crisania against the energy of that explosion, trying desperately to contain it, but he begins to lose control. With a final tremendous effort, Raislin and Crisania push forward towards the portal as the fortress collapses around them. Raislin hears the mocking laughter of the Queen of Darkness, taunting him, calling him home, home to the abyss, home to everlasting damnation. Okay, so that was War of the Twins. Of all the novels in the original two Dragonlance trilogies, I was probably the least familiar with this novel before rereading it for the podcast, but I have a lot to say about it now. First of all, I want to talk about the basic premise of the novel. In its simplest form, the story is Raceland trying to reach the portal in Zaman with Crisania, while simultaneously trying to figure out a way to escape the fate of Fistandantilus before him. All the other plot elements, Caramon waging the Dwarfgate War, Tass's visit to the Abyss, the political intrigue of the dwarves, is all in service of this story. As a kid, I didn't appreciate this novel very much. I've never been much interested in armies on campaign or in battle strategies, nor political intrigue. To be honest, I've never been much interested in dwarves either. Stories of an underground civilization of stonemasons and miners simply don't stir my imagination the way that stories of woodland rangers and knights and castles do. Dwarves are a hardy, stoic, pragmatic people who value stability, tradition, and hard work. I value spontaneity, innovation, and slacking off, so it's hard to relate. Likewise, the nuances of Raceland's history-repeating-itself dilemma were a bit lost on young me as well. 
In fairness to my pre-teenage self, it is a rather slippery concept for a reader who's used to stories where the primary danger is an evil warlord or a dragon. War of the Twins doesn't even really have a villain. The dwarves of Thorbarden are antagonistic to Caramon and the army, yes, but they're never portrayed as evil. Even the dark dwarves are just trying to increase their standing within the dwarven kingdom by aiding in its defense, even if that aid is through rather nefarious means. Raceland's enemy is the course of history itself. To a 12-year-old, that's not exactly compelling. But I'm not 12 anymore, and, as an adult reader, there is much I find enjoyable. If anything, the subtleness of the novel is part of its appeal. Don't get me wrong, I love stories of adventurers crawling through dungeons and battling dragons, but War of the Twins provides a different experience than the typical D&D novel. It's more cerebral, in a way. The audience is required to think about the power of fate and how it impacts the unfolding of history. Even without time travel spells, we can look back at our own history, whether personal or as a society, and wonder how things might have happened if only one seemingly minor event had occurred differently. The device of treating the course of history as the primary antagonist in the novel allows us to see a side of Raceland we've never seen before. We've never seen Raceland not in control of every situation in which he finds himself. At the beginning of Time of the Twins, Raceland boasts that he could conquer the world in a night if he wanted to. In War of the Twins, we see his desperation increasing with every step towards Zaman, knowing he is marching towards his doom, but unable to do anything about it. All of his intelligence and magical knowledge is useless against an enemy he cannot fight. We also see Raceland struggling with his own humanity. He is attracted to Chrysania, but he fears that, if he allows himself to give in to his desire for her, both sexual and romantic desire, his plan will fail. He'll be too busy cleaning the garage or taking the kids to soccer practice to challenge the Queen of Darkness to a mortal combat. There's another struggle within Raceland that really comes to the fore in War of the Twins. It's the struggle with his own identity. I mentioned in the previous episode that it's not clear where Raceland ends and Fistin Dantilus begins. It's not clear to Raceland either. He speaks of committing unforgivably wicked acts of evil, but Raceland doesn't seem to take any pleasure in doing evil. It's just a means to an end for him. But this conflicts drastically with all the good deeds Raceland has done, as Caramon points out. As a young man, Raceland risks his own life to tend to plague victims who have been abandoned by their own families, asking for nothing in return. He is consistently compassionate to the weak and the oppressed. This doesn't jibe with the soulless monster he seems to have become. Is this the influence of Fistandantilus on his personality? Is this entire scheme to challenge the Dark Queen a result of Fistandantilus' possession? Is Raceland an accomplice or just another victim of the ancient wizard? However, there's a different answer to this riddle as well. What if it was always Raceland? Okay, try to follow me on this. In the present, it's believed that a wizard named Fistandantilus lived in Istar before the Cataclysm, then later showed up during the Dwarfgate Wars and died at Zaman. Parsalian, head of the wizard's conclave, said that Fistandantilus survived his physical death at Zaman as an undead spirit, which later inhabited Raceland. In the chronology we know as readers, Raceland kills Fistandantilus during the reign of Istar, then Raceland shows up at the Dwarfgate Wars and apparently dies at Zaman. What if Fistandantilus survived his battle with Raceland as an undead spirit, then waited around to inhabit Raceland hundreds of years later? What if the person who fought in the Dwarfgate Wars was always Raceland? What if Raceland isn't following in Fistandantilus' footsteps, he's just walking his own path again? 
He isn't repeating history. He's making it. Are you confused? Great. Let's move on. My favorite sequence in this novel is the trip to the plague-ravaged village, which Chrysania finds while venturing off on her own. We hear a lot in the first trilogy about the misery of daily life following the cataclysm, about war, famine, and disease doing as much damage as the fiery mountain itself, but here we really get to experience it. A village which was once teeming with activity has become a feast for carrion birds. The disease swept in so quickly that many died within hours. We also see a glimpse of the desperation and anger of the people. The young priest Chrysanian meets prayed for a miracle and was met with silence. The bitterness he feels towards the gods is so great that he would rather die than forgive them. I imagine Ancelon after the cataclysm like Europe after World War I. How can there be any meaning and hope following so much death and destruction? We also get a nice scene with Caramon and Raceland when they go searching for Chrysania. It's been literally years since the twins simply went off on their own, like they did in the old days. For both of them, the excursion evokes fond memories of simpler times. There is a bitter sweetness to this, however, since both men know those times are gone forever. In the climax of the sequence, we get to experience the full power of Raceland's magic. Typically, Raceland's spellcasting happens off-camera, or we learn about it only from descriptions, usually from Dalimar. In both Time of the Twins and War of the Twins, Raceland is conserving his energy for the magical workings he must undertake later. First the time travel spell, and later the spell to enter the abyss. But in this scene, Raceland enjoys a rare moment of self-indulgence. He summons lightning from the sky, which strikes the buildings of the village, setting them aflame. The fire spreads to the entire village, incinerating every home and cremating the bodies in the mass grave dug by the young priest. Chrysania joins Raceland in the center of the fiery tornado, experiencing Raceland's godlike power up close for the first time. This holocaust is, in fact, intended by Raceland as a warning to the gods themselves. He's going to punish them for allowing such tragedy to occur, or so he tells Chrysania. As ever, his true motives are unknown. But I think that some part of Raceland sees the gods as the ultimate bullies, and if there's one thing Raceland can't stand, it's a bully. Reflecting on how I read War of the Twins as a kid and now as an adult, a few of my criticisms still carry. I've softened on the dwarven characters in the novel, but I still don't find army tactics or political intrigue to be very interesting. If you do, you might enjoy those parts of the book more than I did. Also, I have to say that the story is somewhat plotting. It takes six chapters for Raisin, Caramon, and Chrysania just to leave the Tower of High Sorcery and begin their journey. With a few exceptions, like Tasselhoff's experience in the Abyss and the visit to the Plague Village I described earlier, not a whole lot happens in this book. It's mostly just characters talking. That's especially true if you compare it to the previous four Dragonlance novels. Ultimately, that's why young Megan didn't enjoy this novel as much. She was kind of bored reading it. As I like to do in each episode, I'm going to take a few minutes to do a more in-depth character analysis. In this episode, I'm going to be focusing on Lady Chrysania of the House of Tyrrhenius, revered daughter of Paladine. In some ways, Chrysania's arc is similar to that of Lorana or even Goldmoon. Lorana is a princess and Goldmoon is the daughter of the chieftain. Chrysania isn't royalty, but she's definitely born into the high nobility. Her family is one of the wealthiest families in Palanthus, itself one of the wealthiest cities on Ancelon. She was sheltered and protected by doting parents who wanted to shield their daughter from the worst of the world. In Time of the Twins, Chrysania recalls riding through the city in a carriage as a child and her mother shielding her eyes as they rode through the bad neighborhood. 
It's only when Raisin reveals to Chrysania the truth about poverty and vice in Palanthus that she has any idea such things existed in her pristine city. Chrysania's life is all planned out for her. Once she reaches maturity, she will begin the courtship process like so many before her. Of course, she will marry the handsome, well-mannered son of another wealthy and influential family, and they will go on to have handsome, well-mannered children of their own. Shortly after the War of the Lance, Elistan, the cleric of Paladine, arrives in Palanthus to spread the good news of the return of the gods. Chrysania hears about this so-called revered son, and she invites him to her home to chat. She assumes he's just another wandering crackpot full of wacky ideas about kindness and charity, so what's the harm? That day, Chrysania's life changes forever. Chrysania becomes an ardent believer in Elistan's teachings and forsakes her family, wealth, and status to become Paladine's disciple. She rises quickly to prominence within the church, earning the title of revered daughter, and is even considered one of Elistan's potential successors. However, there's a deep vein of pridefulness running through Chrysania. Perhaps it's a result of how she was raised, or perhaps it's just part of her personality. She's more pious, more faithful, more virtuous than the common man or woman, and therefore superior. Her mind is fixed on the highest ideals, and she thinks the loftiest thoughts. Everything but the gods themselves are beneath her. Upon meeting her, Tana sees her as cold and passionless, lacking in humanity. As Elistan tells Tanis, she walks with her eyes fixed on the heavens. She is not quite indifferent to the world around her, but she is mostly unaware of it. Perhaps the reason Chrysania feels herself drawn to Raislin is because she senses she may have found an equal. He is as intelligent as she is holy, as corrupt as she is virtuous, as powerful in his magic as she is in her faith, and they are both equally ambitious. Grisania has had every advantage possible in her life, and suddenly she meets this strange man who challenges everything she knows. Grisania is described as being drawn to this evil the way a moth is drawn to a candle's flame. Tika senses that Grisania has fallen in love with Raislin, but the truth is that her attraction borders on narcissistic and self-serving. Raislin senses this, and thus it's easy for him to manipulate Grisania by telling her exactly what she wants to hear. He chooses her to be his accomplice, grooming her, as it were, while they are in Istar. He stokes her vanity at every opportunity, until her ego is so inflamed that she believes she can challenge the Dark Queen or alter the course of history. When Chrysania meets the young priest in the Plague Village, the scene provides a lot of insight into Chrysania's character. She imagines that she is going to be able to set the world on the right course all by herself. The way she sees it, the world was just waiting to hear the truth of the ancient gods, then all will be well. With this act, she will bring the light of the gods into this dark world, hundreds of years before Goldmoon was fated to do so. But Chrysania is utterly baffled by the response of the young man when she offers to heal him. She can barely comprehend any worldview different from her own. In that respect, she isn't all that different from the king-priest. Chrysania fails to understand that piety and virtue and holiness are all fine things, but the human heart is just as powerful, and the human heart is not as rigid and inflexible as Chrysania's faith. What does Chrysania want? I suppose it's her conflicting desire that makes her such an interesting character to me. On the one hand, Chrysania truly wants to use her holy power to help the poor and the sick and the downtrodden, and to bring lost souls to the faith of the true gods. On the other hand, 
Chrysania sees herself as a woman whose life has a grand, divine purpose. Let other clerics organize charity drives and run homeless shelters and other such material concerns. Chrysania wants to change the world, make a dent in the universe. First, she thinks, by turning Raceland to good, and later by overthrowing the Queen of Darkness herself. Chrysania's ambition isn't evil. It isn't purely selfish like Raceland's, but it does allow her to be easily deceived by a master manipulator. At the end of War of the Twins, Chrysania helps Raceland to enter the portal, blindly believing in their shared destiny. Before we finish out today's episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about the culture of the dwarves. I know, I know, I was talking crap about dwarves earlier, but it's just a personal preference. It doesn't mean there isn't a lot about the dwarves to love. There are two different legends about the creation of the dwarves. The dwarves believe they were created by Reorks himself. Reorks is, of course, the smith of the gods, like Vulcan or Hephaestus in Greco-Roman mythology. Technically, he's part of the pantheon of neutrality, but he's nevertheless worshipped by the typically good-aligned dwarves. In dwarven belief, they are the favored race of Reorks, and the worship of Reorks infuses every part of dwarven culture. Dwarves seek excellence, whether as stonemasons, metalworkers, traders, or warriors, and they believe they honor Reorks by excelling in their chosen craft. Even after the Cataclysm, when there are no dwarven clerics, the dwarves still treat Reorks as a kind of estranged father figure. The second legend about the creation of the dwarven race involves a powerful artifact called the Grey Gem, but we'll deal with that in a later episode. Dwarves come in several varieties. The primary distinction is between the mountain dwarves and the hill dwarves. The mountain dwarves dwell underground in the mountain city of Thorbarden, mining and working the metal and stone under the mountain to be traded to the outside world. Long ago, groups of dwarves left the mountain to engage in this trade as merchants and discovered that life in the outside world wasn't so bad. These became known as hill dwarves, and they enjoyed the freedom of life outside the rigidly structured society of the mountain kingdom. The most famous of the hill dwarves was Flint Fireforge, hero of the lance, although others in his family achieved great prominence as well. There is a sub-race of dwarves called the dark dwarves, or doer, who live in the deepest depths of the mountain. Their isolation from other dwarves and subsequent inbreeding caused a strain of insanity to appear in their race. Dark dwarves are a quote-unquote evil race. They are loyal to the High King of the Dwarves, Duncan, during the War of the Twins, but eventually will fight for the Dark Queen during the War of the Lance. Then there are the Gully Dwarves. Gully Dwarves are kind of an offshoot of the Dwarves, stupider and more primitive, but generally good-hearted like their more sophisticated cousins. Gully Dwarves can be found living anywhere on Kryn, including Thorbarden. Dwarven society is divided into clans. The Hylar are the elite clan of Dwarves. This is the clan that Duncan and Karis belong to. The hill dwarves comprise their own clan, as do the dark dwarves and, technically speaking, the gully dwarves. There are a handful of others as well. Each clan functions semi-autonomously, led by a chieftain known as a thane. The thanes come together to make up the ruling council of Thorbarden. Occasionally, one thane is chosen to be a kind of first among equals called the High King. This is the title given to Duncan prior to the Dwarfgate War. In the years following the Cataclysm, Duncan was able to unite the clans under him with the support of the great dwarven hero, Karis. Karis is an exceptional dwarf. As a young dwarf living prior to the Cataclysm, Karis is one of a number of dwarven warriors sent to fight alongside the Knights of Salamnia, who are then allies of the Mountain Dwarves. His bravery, skill in battle, and his personal conduct earn him an honorary knighthood, and the name he is given, Karis, means knight. 
It is said that Karis was so beloved of Reorks that Reorks allowed Karis to use his forge to create the two-handed warhammer he uses in battle. Karis is known among all the dwarves as being honest and honorable. He is the only dwarf outside their clan that the Dark Dwarves trust. Karis is unfailingly loyal to his thane, Duncan, and helps Duncan to consolidate his power as High King without seeking any glory for himself. Following the Cataclysm, the Mountain Dwarves close their barden off to the outside world. This leaves their kinsmen, the Hill Dwarves, trapped outside. The Mountain Dwarves see the decision as necessary to keep Thorbarden safe. The Hill Dwarves see it as a betrayal. When Rhaegar Fireforge comes to Duncan and demands the Hill Dwarves be allowed into Thorbarden, or at least to share in its food and money, Duncan refuses. Duncan knows that the Mountain Dwarves simply do not have enough food in their stores or money in their coffers to share. If the Mountain Dwarves allow the Hill Dwarves in, they will all starve. Karis pleads with Duncan to tell the Hill Dwarves the truth of the situation, but Duncan refuses, knowing that the mistrust runs too deeply and the Hill Dwarves will never believe him. When the time comes for the Mountain Dwarves and the Hill Dwarves to fight, Karis appears on the battlefield with his face shaven. For a dwarven man, his beard is an outside display of his honor. Having one's beard shorn is a mark of shame, a punishment for murder, desertion, and cowardice. Karis explains that his loyalty to Duncan demands that he fight for him, but that he is deeply ashamed to be spilling the blood of his kinsmen. That is all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me in two weeks or so when we will be discussing the final installment of the Legends trilogy, Test of the Twins. If you have any questions or comments, I can be reached at dndbookclub at gmail.com. That's D-A-N-D-D Book Club or on Instagram at dndbookclub. Until next time, remember, be like Caramon and wear your mask.